0: Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. COWATER is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie skodowska kuri Action. COWATER examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co-production. I am Pratywi Widyatni Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. After some inactive months, I returned with the fourth season of co Voice, to talk about possible radical alternatives to water service commercialization. The privatization trend with its different forms of implementing policy has definitely worsened existing conflicts over water resources and water territories, a topic that I have covered in the season 2 of this podcast. In this season, I have conversations to highlight some important concepts for understanding the background conditions of public service privatization, or why it was possible in the first place for privatization to happen worldwide. I think only through this understanding we can then imagine the conditions of possibility for the alternatives to emerge. In this season 4, I have discussions with David MacDonald, Francisca Paul, Mangala Subramaniam, Margherita De Andrea, and Giuseppe Micharelli, as well as Sirisha Naidu. Equally important, we also hear from Muhammad Reza Sahib, Irwan Shah, and many other Indonesian activists and scholar activists. We have Andreas Hassono with us in this episode. Andreas Hassono is a senior journalist and a human rights activist. He has written several reports on the case of water privatization, especially in Jakarta. He links the privatization issue with democracy and accountability in governance, as well as the Indonesian historical trajectory in infrastructure development and public policy making. Around 20 years after his reports on the case of Jakarta were published, the issues he has raised are still highly relevant. The absence of transparency and real participation in public policy making, for example. It is so valuable to have him in this episode as he has reported on many other relevant themes such as transportation and other urban infrastructures, mining, environmental issues, state-sponsored violence, and discrimination of minority ethnic and religious groups. I believe we can make some critical reflections beyond water governance. Andrea Sasono, thank you for joining me in this episode. You are one of the key persons in Indonesia who documented in detail the case of water privatization in Jakarta. Before I pick some interesting findings from your reports, may I ask about your personal trajectory as a journalist in following this case closely? Before you moved to Jakarta in 1993, you studied in Salatiga. It's a mid-sized city on Java Island, and you wrote a lot about the danger of motorization. Please tell us how you view these problems, how you relate these problems of urban infrastructures from transportations to water infrastructure provision. In
1: 1993, I was a university student. Uh, I was then 18 years old. I started to notice how unpleasant it was, the public transportation system in Salatika. The government provided very small fan, Daihatsu fan, which only only for six people but change it into mini buses the passengers smoke the drivers smoke they don't have sch- they don't have schedule fixed schedule so i thought that this is not nice and i began to read about sustainable transportation system michael replocal you know uh, development policy and i noticed that the government not only introducing this motorization but also marginalizing non motorized vehicles Bicycle lane, horse drawn cart, pedicab, tricycle, and of course, cyclists. Uh, it was made to be unpleasant to take non motorized vehicle off to walk, which is happening all over Indonesia. So that was the beginning when I thought that. I should write more about the problem of urbanization, the problem of uh, motorization in Indonesia.
0: When you you already live in Jakarta, then you wrote many reports, including this award-winning investigative reports about the problems of water privatization. Lots of processes in this water privatization implementation were done in quite in a closed environment. It was not at all transparent. So how did you approach your... Interviewees, how how did you approach the people within the the private water companies, and how did you approach also the people within the the policy making processes, the state officers, and the people in the public works as well?
1: I started with documents. I started with contract. I started with news clippings, and after I have a picture about what is going on. And I I started to what I call snowball interview technique. You interview A, and then from A, you get B, and then B will give you C and D. C and D will give you more names, uh, phone numbers. So that is the way I I did my interview. Basically, I think I interviewed about 150 people, ranging from state-owned company, water company employees, also the private company's executive from Suez and also Thames Water, and later also the top executive, including those close to then President Suharto. Uh, and then I also interview the World Bank official, the National Development, National Development Agency official, uh, as well as some ministers in the cabinet, the governor of Jakarta, those who gave me the minute that President Suharto gave them, ordering them to split uh, Jakarta, the capital, into two water contracts, one for Suez and the other one for Thames water. So basically starting from document and then the snowball interview technique.
0: Documents, um, at that time, was it easy to get access to these
1: documents? Well, if you do the official channel, the answer is knock, knock, knock. Can I have the water contract? Of course, the answer is no. Knock, 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 no again. Knock, 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 no again. But, you know, there are people working there. There are staff, there are secretaries, there are drivers who can tip tip me about when their bosses are going to, 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 to do what, to go where. So those are the staff that I managed to approach. And those are the staff that, that thought that it is going to be helpful if I got the water contract. And that's, that's the way I did it. It was, I think, 600 pages in both languages, English and Indonesian. So I got the water contract.
0: The public officers at the time, um, were they
1: willing to speak to you? Yes, if you take a look at all those reports, no one was anonymous, all used their name. There was a World Bank official, economist, who, after I met him in his office, he said, I can give you the interview if you do not mention my name. Uh, and then I told him that we journalists, if we want to have anonymous sources, there are seven criteria. One is there is a real risk of your life. Uh, second, this is for public needs, et etc, et etc. You can easily Google and you get the seven criteria for for here having anonymity in in that's, journalism.
0: That's interesting, Very uh, thank you for mentioning this uh, because um, that's quite a a different approach uh, for the ethics that we academic researchers have to. To deal with uh, that, we basically um, would anonymous uh, most of our uh, interviews. But
1: it, it's 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 different, uh, but it is also the same. If you use anonymous sources, mm-hmm. you do not let your readers to measure to what degree the readers should trust. To what degree the readers should trust the sources. Thus, after describing about, you know, people can have anonymity. You know, rape victim, traumatic victim, of course, they have the rights to be anonymous, because we don't want to re-erase their trauma. But these officials, this executive, you know, they they can easily hide behind anonymity if they are given that kind of status. Thus, after telling them about the strict criteria. All of them say that, okay, on the record.
0: Uh, I just want to go to uh, one part of your reports. In one of your reports, you wrote the British chairman firm RWA e. Thameswater. I think you are among the few who paid attention to the details that Thameswater, when they arrived in Jakarta, it was already a company with shareholders located beyond the national territory. Do you have any particular observation on this if that would be important to to really tell the public about these details or it was uh, it doesn't matter for the public at the time because it was about the regime of suharto and his authoritarian regime and the foreign companies
1: i just thought that it is important to tell the readers and also the public at large that this is a multinational company. It used to be, you know, Thames Water, the company that managed Thames River Water, London, but they have moved across the border to Germany. And they, of course, set up more branches all over the world. I think this is just important for the readers to understand. Before
0: we continue on that, um, i like to, to ask you about, um back about the relation of uh, several issues of urbanization, transport, and water. And I think it's it's very visible in Jakarta. Jakarta has uh, multiple problems. One of it's uh, about uh, the cities being uh, sinking. By 2050, probably 5 million people in Jakarta will lose their houses, submerged because groundwater is being sucked up, and the climate crisis. But on the other hand, we are a city in a delta. Before the Dutch introduced canalization in Batavia, Jakarta mm-hmm. is always swampy land, and that's how the indigenous way of living to live with water. How do you feel mm-hmm. this problem?
1: Of course, it is a difficult geographical location, but you know, like it or not. Batavia, the Dutch name of Jakarta, was already built, and of course Jakarta is already built. What the government failed over the last few decades is to manage this city well, to manage the the sanitation, the waterway, the traffic, the transportation system, the sidewalk, everything. They fail, fail, fail and fail. And then we have to face the music. Jakarta is thinking, I already wrote about this 30 years ago. I already warned people that if we did not do what the government is supposed to do and the public use their vote to elect proper uh, politician, we will face all of this problem. And now we are facing the problem and of course, There are much bigger problems that Indonesia has to face. Uh, I keep on writing, I keep on warning the public that uh, we have to change the way this country is being governed.
0: One of uh, the reasons that I would like to have you in, in one of the podcast episodes is that you have raised quite a crucial issue since really, like, more than two decades ago, but this is still relevant. And that's, I mean, somehow we are kind of always listening to the old music. We are still not moving forward. You've mentioned about the civil society movement, and I know that you're uh, part of it. You you, were you very active to also form organizations, uh, grassroots organizations, as well as profession organizations. But now still, it's just about... The public sector. And I think uh, sometimes we forget that we need to build a good public sector. One point is that about, again, about transparency. I would like to go back to this point. Do you think now in Indonesia, there are kind of more fair processes who would get the contract? Now Moya Indonesia is one of the dominate, dominating uh, player. And um, you know, it's still close to the cronies, the old cronies. Maybe you have some uh, observations regarding this.
1: It is just in in general. It is difficult to do business in Indonesia without bribing, without using connection. It is difficult for business leaders not to invest in aspiring politicians. Maybe this is the curse of this nation because we do not know how to manage especially the diversity of Indonesia. Ethnic diversities, religious diversities, sexual orientation, there are more and more discriminatory regulations made against the minorities, whether religious minorities, of course the biggest part is Christian, whether gender minorities, women, or sexual minorities, in a bid to survive, many of these minorities, especially those who have money, will use tribe to thrive. Uh, Moya is a part of the Salim Business Group. It is controlled by mostly ethnic Chinese, Indonesian minorities. I'm not surprised if they have to do this because fair play is a big
0: challenge in Indonesia. Seeking characters of um, our government, perhaps, is not unique to Indonesia. And there's also a problem of other Southeast Asian countries and also other countries in the global South. But then there's still uh, quite a strong movement, and this is something that uh, I forgot to. To mention, now I remember that you also, in your reports about water privatization, you also call for some interviews with the unions of PAMJAYA at the time. And you even also mention about some occupations done by, by this union to bring back the water companies into the public hands. Maybe you, you still remember a bit of what you have written. Maybe you could tell us a bit.
1: Uh, you mean the lawsuit now?
0: Um, the lawsuit, but also you know, in the nineteen ninety eight, there was a crisis, and it was a very interesting story you have written that some of the executive um, uh, left the country to this the riots around this the time of the fall of Suharto.
1: Well, the the water contract was signed in February nineteen ninety eight. It was during the Asian economic crisis, but The political tension was so high uh, to the extent that by May, three months later, May 98, Indonesia was really in a very, very difficult situation. The economic crisis hit Indonesia, uh, inflation, job losses, and many presidential-related businesses were accused to create economic problems. Many of those foreign companies, including Thames Water and, and Suez, the executive they who just arrived in Jakarta because you know the deal was only signed in, Hanover was signed in February, I did not know what to do. No. Mostly ran away to Singapore. Not all, some of them still, very few. Uh, for instance, Bernard Leprong, the French man uh, who was married to an Indonesian woman, uh, was still in Jakarta, but but the situation was pretty chaotic to the extent that Pam Jaya, the state-owned uh, water company, basically took over the operation once again because they were afraid with the with the lack of management from the two companies, uh, the the water supply will be disrupted. You can imagine if, if you know, bacteria went into the water system or even people put poison, how many million of people will suffer uh, without the management of the water system in Cheka at the time? I still, and and those who left were not only the expat Indonesian executive, also ran away mostly to Singapore at the time. they only returned maybe June or July or August, and mostly without their families.
0: I guess some of the listeners want to access your publications. Are they all available in your website?
1: Yes, I put. I think most of, of the long report. Not the short one, uh, on my blog on andreasarsenal
0: I think uh, we have to read them again. They're very, very interesting reports you have written, and very valuable also because uh, it's linked to several other problems. Do you have any prescription? Well, when we we have to put priorities in a family, let's say you have to say when this is uh, have to be done first. What kind of sector that has to be? Be dealt with infrastructure is physical development, but there are other things that we need. Maybe it's fine to not have a glossy, glossy streets or glossy a fast train. But then the very basic needs about the civil rights is still a problem Yeah, in Indonesia.
1: I believe that Indonesia is still, is still a nation in moving. It is not a nation that is already fulfilled. The state is here the structure the framework of the state this year. in a bit to build a better nation state we need to build the nation in a bit to build the nation we need to uphold human rights not only civil and political rights but also you know social economic and cultural rights that is what i believe that's why I wrote about transportation, but I also wrote about water rights. I wrote about religious freedom, LGBT rights, women's rights, and many others. And of course, I defend whether you are an Achenist, you know, in Aceh, in the time there was a war, or ethnic Maduris on Kalimantan or the Papuan or uh, Ahmadiyya. So defend them as fellow citizens because all of us are treated, should be treated equally in Indonesia, in a bit to build a nation state of Indonesia.
0: I think now I would like to um, end the podcast by referring to your uh, writing about Papua. You also have written about the, the way the traditional, you have written about sagu and ubi so the, the the traditional ways of eating in Papua is not rice. And this is like the Java domination of the idea of food. This is very related to water, because rice cultivation, they need a particular way of organizing water.
1: Well, this is about healthy food, basically. The Papuan, they have grown sweet potatoes, I don't know, 5,000 years. Uh, And why should they being told that they should eat rice or sagu and many other food. The government has tried to diversify food intake, but unfortunately the the implementation doesn't work. That's why we are nowadays, just when we are doing this interview, we are seeing report about hunger in Yahukimo in the Central uh, Highlands in West Papua, it is sad. Our inadequate understanding about multiple ethnic groups in Indonesia produced disaster after disaster in seventy years of independence.
0: We look forward to to read your next publications.
1: Thank you so much.